1: Welcome once again to Gorilla Shear, and it's a, a special edition uh, tonight in 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 many ways. Um my guest this evening is none other than a sports journalist and author Duncan Hamilton. Uh, so much we could say about uh, a man whose uh, work I have well followed for for many years. Three William Hill Sports Book of the Year prizes nominated on a further four occasions two British Sports Books awards and the only writer to have won the Wisden Cricket Book of the Year on no less than three occasions. His biography of Chariot fire Runner Eric Liddell was a New York Times bestseller. And um, recently, he's contributed to uh, Johnny Bairstow's uh, moving biography, uh, autobiography, A Clear Blue Sky. But today, we're going to concentrate mainly on his most recent work, The Great Romantic Cricket in the Golden Age of Neville Cardiff. Also with me is Annie Chave, well known to all of our, our listeners. But Duncan, welcome indeed to uh, Gorilla Share and Gorilla Cricket.
2: Thank you so much, Tony. Um,
1: I wonder if it's if we could start perhaps by you telling us a little bit about how you, you how you discovered Neville Cardus, because you you, you you have such empathy and passion and, and in the in the way that you talk about him.
2: Well, it was 1973, and Cardis was being interviewed by John Arlott for the BBC, and they did four separate programs. And um, I caught the first one, mostly wanting to watch because of John Arlott, Mm. who was a massive, massive hero of, of mine. And I didn't really know that much about Cardis. But as he spoke, I thought, well, I really ought to go out and get some of his books. I think I'd just recently read J. M. Kilburn. I think mm-hmm. I got him out of the library at the time simply because he'd got one of his collections out, probably that a year. And Cardus interested me for an awful lot of reasons. Really, a because he was able to describe not only place but actually movement and action. And I would sort of explain that they are two kind of different things. Really, the kind of movement I mean is the way that the way that someone would actually play, hmm. whereas the action would be the game uh, around him. And um, that absolutely fascinated me. And it was only really after I finished the book that I suddenly realized a, a, uh, another significant thing. That was also the year that I learned how to type. I, I kind of went into um, a typing class. Purely because I decided that I was going to go into journalism,
1: and well, I wanted rather to ironically something journalism. he never did <laughs> <laughs> from uh, from my recollection um, he, he always eschewed uh, technology and typing didn't he, for most of his career
2: Oh, he did I mean he, he couldn't type I mean he could do some um, i mean he could sort of type at two area uh, fingers, but it was so slow and um, when you look back at his archive... Um, I mean, his hand of writing was absolutely beautiful, which is, of course, very much the case for people who were probably schooled shortly before I was. Um, I mean, I could never write a thousand words hand, uh, hand, written. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I can barely write two uh, sentences, um, nowadays because I've been typing for so long. Um, but Carlos was able to kind of write these very long pieces. And uh, one of his main kind of points about writing was that if you had far too many crossings out, then the piece wasn't working and you should go back and actually start from the beginning. And um, when you read his kind of copy um, in its original form, there are very few crossings out.
1: So, well, that's that's, that, that, that's extraordinary, because if I think how I write... Um... I'm constantly pressing the back button <laughs> and editing editing the editings of my edits. Um but you reckon somehow he, he his flow was natural?
2: Yes, I think it was. I think he was rather like J M Kilburn, who was exactly the same. Um I think they were both um essentially twins, really. I mean I once described um Cardis as the kind of wordsworth of the kind of press box. Mm. And one kind of Kilburn was more the um, Samuel Coleridge, um, mm-hmm. kind of slightly less flowery. But um, Kilburn was exactly the same, never uh, used a keyboard.
1: Yeah, I, I, as I said, I think you're... What comes out to me in in reading, well, certainly in reading the The Great Romantic, but also in reading Kings of Summer, is at times... You, you you are you are talking about him, and yet you're describing the world in which he existed in, in words that, it frankly, sometimes could almost be his. You 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 almost seem to completely inhabit his space, and it makes it and that makes it one of the more more fascinating things about reading the book. Was that something you were quite conscious of as as, as when you were when you were crafting it?
2: well i was very conscious of the fact that he uh, wrote so uh, well that i would have to write fairly kind of plainly really because i thought that if i um, that if i tried to copy him or i tried to write in a even a kind of half similar way that it would rather be like putting too much sugar in a cup of tea hmm. uh, and so i was very conscious that on certain kind of passages i just wanted to write them very simply um, because some of the stuff that Cardus wrote was absolutely beautiful, um, and um, you kind of read it back. And if you just change the names, try to pretend it was from the nineteen. Uh, sorry, if you actually try to pretend that it was from the current day, as opposed from the nineteen kind of twenties, mm. I mean, it would. I mean, it would pass kind of muster now.
1: Uh, yeah, now that was that was definitely some one of the areas that. Uh... I, I I sort of wanted to come onto I I I think um, if you look at the way he wrote I mean he, he talked about the higher truth and there, it seems to me there's a, a difference between pre- predominantly being in print and then to radio but but not so much TV that you have a a, a right to a, a embellish and and you know, write more about what's going on around the action rather than purely the action itself. And it seemed to me that that was a skill that he had, and I wondered about how well that would transfer, for example, to covering modern sport, or particularly modern cricket.
2: Well, I think he would find a way. I think I, I think good journalists or good writers always find a way to be able to write about something. And I think he would slightly temper the kind of work that he did in the 1920s if he were coming back now. And um I was having a conversation with somebody the other day about how he might cover a 2020 game. Mm. And he said, I think he would just do it in exactly the same way. Um, and he would just make it um, so that it wasn't just based around who scored 79, or who took four for 17, that would that would obviously be mentioned, but he would kind of fasten on maybe a catch, or, or, or a particular shot, or a particular ball, and he would be able to actually do it. I think in terms of the embellishment, I mean, one of the main reasons I did the book was to kind of prove that he didn't kind of, in the, in the rebellish half as much, well, not even three-quarters as much, as he said, as kind of other people have actually said in their uh, including himself i think he played up an awful lot of things um that he said that he made up where he hadn't made them up really he kind of probably added a, a little kind of punchline to a joke or something like that but i think generally speaking when you um when you look back and i went back and looked at i mean i can't remember how many match reports that I saw now, but I didn't only read his match reports. I actually read his contemporaries match reports. I picked a set number of games and I went through them. And the only difference in them really was that Cardiff was a much better writer.
0: Mm.
1: Well, it's, it's to me one of the interesting things in sort of comparing the Golden Age. I mean, I guess when you're talking about the Golden Age, clearly when he was writing, but you're talking primarily before and then between the wars which which years most would you sort of bracket as being within the golden age
2: well i think the golden age for him was obviously between the wars because he was by far and away the best known cricket writer in the whole world
0: yeah and that
2: lovely story about how he goes off to australia in 3670, the first time he's seen the country, and he's fated there rather in the same way that Oscar Wilde and Charles Dickens were when they went to the USA. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's met at the boat. He's been. I mean, he's been asked to go to parties and to luncheons and to make speeches. And that was because what he didn't realise was that a lot of the broadcasting he'd done on music was actually heard there, and also a lot of the work that he did for the Guardian was uh, was actually read read there. And um, I found this lovely line from somebody who was, I can't remember, working for one of the papers in El- in their, um, Adelaide, I think. And he remarked on that since Cardis had arrived in their, uh, Perth, or wherever they docked, that, uh, 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 that in the four or five months after his uh, arrival, everybody was trying to write like Neville Cardis. Mm-hmm.
1: And do you think that's, regardless of countries, uh, a country, something that's still true? I mean, it clearly has had an enormous impact on on you. Um, I don't think there is anyone who loves cricket who isn't able to quote us a line here or there <laughs> uh, of how Neville Cardis would, you know, enliven you know situations and 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 characters. But but um, clearly, John Arlott um tell us a little bit then about a because clearly i think you were able to spend a lot of time with john arlott but also neville cardus had kind of imbued himself into <laughs> john arlott hadn't he some to to the fact that he i think he coloured a lot of the way that john arlott thought about and watched cricket and it was interesting they both had two swords to their bow you know with john arlott it was uh, it was wine and cricket <laughs> with neville cardus it was music and cricket But to me, there's something quite interesting in that similarity that they they were equally authorities and paid to write about, Um, different but slightly complementary subjects.
2: Well, I think one of the nicest things I found was a letter that John Arlett wrote to one of Neville Cardis' friends towards the end of the 1960s, when he was trying to get Cardis' books reissued, because some of them had gone out of print. And he was writing about how in the 1920s and 30s he had sent Cardis every book that he wrote to kind of get signed. And so he would write and the book would come back signed. And at some point during the war, I don't know what the circumstances were, but um, these books had been lost or they'd been stolen um, or something had happened to them. And um, it was a grievous blow to Arlott because... They were part of his growing up. And I think that he never lost that wonder with Cardis. And he was very tolerant of him, really, because I think, I don't think Neville was the kind of sort of, I think he was the kind of person that, um, that, well, A, he, he didn't spend long in the press box because he liked to watch the game from outside the press box. Mm. But I think that he made an awful lot of demands on people's patience. <laughs> Let me put it tactfully like that. But it, but but that never took away from from John Arlett's enjoyment of him, both as a person and as a writer. And when I first met John Arlett, which was in the Trent Bridge press box, and he came in through the door, it was, it, it was one of the old press boxes there. It was the one that was on the Radcliffe Road side, and it was a long kind of wooden kind of press uh, box. And um, he came in rather late in the day because he'd had a lot of hospitality from the Knots committee and nobody had seen him. And for him to walk through the door for me, I mean, I was just overawed. I mean, this was, this was someone that I absolutely worshipped. And for him to be sitting next to me and to be asking to use a phone, I was in charge of the phones. It was a very menial task, uh, task that I did. Mm. And, um, he was so kind. He was just so kind. He kind of, Treated
1: me as if I was a real journalist. Well, I, I can and I can understand that that would be uh, an enormous encouragement, especially if it's someone who you've admired, you know, initially from afar. I mean, certainly I can think about my own upbringing watching cricket, and to me, John Arlott was a gold standard. You know, he was that voice of summer, wasn't he? That <laughs> you just those rich, resonant. Uh, wine-fuelled sometimes tones of his, but but never, never off the money when it came to, to describing a situation with a degree of humour, but often tinged with Cardus turns of phrase. You know, old ladies and uh, walking sticks, for example, uh, you know, sort of come to mind.
2: I think his level of expertise and lots of people who saw it still actually talk about this. Um, the BBC were covering a John Player League game at Trent uh, Bridge, sometime in the early 70s, and it poured down. And um, they had time to film, and they didn't have any film, really, to film it with. And so they sent John Olop around the long room at Trent, uh, Trent Bridge, where he just spoke with um, without any script for about 30-odd minutes,
0: hmm.
2: perfectly about the pictures he saw and the bats and the players. Um, and it's rather for people with very old memories, I suppose, like A.G.P. Taylor, who who kind of used to talk about the origins of the second world war like that well um arlet could just go and talk about cricket at an absolute drop of a pin really and um he'd be word perfect
1: tell us um then perhaps cuz cuz although I'm sort of flipping between books a little bit to me they they just belong as companions to one another <laughs> which is the um the, the kings of summer and and the great romantic um one of the things was his ability to describe people, and there was almost a kind of a, a Dickensian quality to some of the characters that he would he would create. You know the you know Reggie Spooners, the uh, A. C. McLarens, the Cecil Parkin, who I think he called the Artful Dodger. You know Emmett Robinson. You <laughs> I mean the the list is endless. And, and you know I would encourage listeners to just read the book because because if you can bring to life characters who you may never have seen or never previously have read about, um, they are in so many ways larger than life through the way that he interpreted them, weren't they?
2: Well, I think one of the key things, really, Tony, is that when I look back at all the all the kind of um, work that he did, and he wrote millions and millions of words, mm. certainly between, let's say, uh, 19, kind of 19, up to about 1936, 37. I mean, he didn't write as much in the last two years of that interwar period for, for, um, reasons of disenchantment, I think. Mm. Mostly. But I think that, um, when I went through all his Guardian reports and all the reports he did for so many magazines and all the features that he did, that you kind of realize how much Dickens was his kind of guiding light because Dickens appears so often in his copy and the characters of Dickens appear so often in his copy. So that I think that, that what he was doing was that he was looking down on Cricketfield and thinking, well, if Dickens was here, how would he write about Robinson or how would he write about Spooner or, uh, or kind of some of the characters of Lancashire? And I think that, um, He was much influenced by the novels that he read. I think he was probably more influenced by, by kind of fiction than he was by non-fiction. Um, which is the case for an awful lot of writers, really, especially non-fiction. Um, but I, I mean, I, I kind of lost count and I did a special, special little section in the, uh, in the great romantic Mm. about the relationship between, uh, Cardus's writings And Dickens' writings, because he certainly took an awful lot from him.
1: Yes, I mean, one of the things that was sort of I was thinking about before this chat was what, in a way, as I said, with Neville Cardus, the reader probably hadn't seen the action. Whereas today, the reader of anything by and large may well have seen. The action because they will have seen a YouTube clip, <laughs> or they will have watched it on Sky TV, or they will have watched it on um, BT Sports, or, or or even seen clips on ESPN. There are ESPN, um, Cricket Info. There are so many ways you can see and consume, and therefore your imagination, in some ways, doesn't need to be poked as much or stimulated as much. And um, if you think about then. How he might transfer to today? What players do you think he might? Who who would be his modern uh, Emmett Robinson? Who would who would be an Arthur Ticker Mitchell? <laughs> who might he latch onto today? As and 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 sort of really bring to life? Do you think?
2: Well, I think one of the kind of disappointing things about modern cricket is that the correspondents don't get an awful lot of chance to watch county cricket. I mean. If you are a, a kind of cricket correspondent nowadays, because the Test and the one-day game is just an ever-whirling carousel, you you kind of don't really find yourself down at um, Hove very often. You don't find yourself down at Taunton, unless, of course, it's for an international, mm. one-day-a-day match. Um, I mean, I suppose that out of the out of the modern cricketers. I think he would get a great deal out of Ben Stokes. (laughs) I think he would get an awful lot uh, um, um, out of him. Uh, I I think any fast bowler, um, certainly, because he particularly loved fast bowlers and he particularly loved spinners. I mean, you were right when you said that, obviously, um, virtually no one had seen the, um, the kind of players that he was talking about in the 20s or 30s. Pathé, Pathé News um, did a series where they went around all of the counties hmm. towards towards the end of the 20s and uh, the beginning of the 30s, and they did these little 10-minute films. And that would have really been the first time that anyone had seen them on the big screen, apart, obviously, from the, the test matches. Uh, 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 sorry, from the test test matches. But then the figures were actually quite small because the cameras weren't able to focus in. But I think that if he were writing now, I think it's the way that you see something. I think that he would see something in in a mm-hmm. player like Ben Stokes that uh, that he would still be able to kind of pick up and and kind of use. And as a reader, you would probably say, well, I hadn't noticed that before. Um, I just think that was the kind of writer that he was. There was a touch of genius about him. Yeah. Really? Well, yeah. more than a touch.
1: Well, it's almost, <laughs> and, it's almost, it's, it's, it's... Spotting the theatrical and literary potential in a character, and we we made ourselves a little list. I'd be really interested to hear what you think about it. Just literally, we went around our green room. It is our commentators who aren't currently commentating, and we, you know, we like you. We put Ben Stokes top of our list. Also on that list, we had Rashid Khan, just because we felt there was something in his variety and versatility. Um that would have tickled Neville Cardus. Uh, we had Darren Stevens on our list just because he represented that doughty warhorse of, of a, of a county cricket trooper that always brought something to the party. Do you think there's any others that, that sort of fit into that category that you think would have delighted Neville Cardus?
2: Oh, I think he would have had a great time with Kane uh, Williamson. Mm. <laughs> I think he would have loved Kane Williamson. I mean, I love Kane Williamson. so, But I think that he would have just been able to write about him the way that he wrote about Woolley, for example. I think he would have found something in him, despite obviously Woolley was a left-hander. But I think he would have found something in Kane Williamson, just in the sheer simplicity, the the, the kind of beautiful simplicity of his shots. I think he would have, goodness, you know, this is a very fine, very fine player here um just probably in the same way that had he been covering the test the kind of whitewash test series when mitchell johnson was sort of sending us all um yeah kind of very early in the morning feeling as if we didn't want to uh, watch the next day's play i think he would have got an awful lot out of him too
1: do you think um, do you think he had a a, a, a feeling for a pantomime villain <laughs>
2: Oh, yes, I think he would have loved The Pentamon <laughs> Villain, yes. Because there's, cause I mean, there's a few fair. of those. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think in the same way that um, that um, any director casts a film, mm. who is your lead actor, who is your second and third lead, and who is your villain, then that is the way that he looked at every game. So I think, yeah, someone like Mitchell Johnson, he, he would, I mean,
1: he would have loved him. Loved him as i as i read through the book i I'm, i mean i bookmarked pages that stimulated thoughts for me but there's one that kept coming back to me and you talked about his disenchantment and that's kind of what got me thinking about if he was around today how might he pick out characters who might he talk about but there's one thing where you said um, he doubted that contemporary cricket uh, was as rich in character as the golden age and whilst i'm paraphrasing it slightly there was a phrase that was. Uh, there's a surfeit of dull workmen <laughs> so so that, that that I think was his work his words, so obviously I mean he left us, I think, in nineteen seventy five but um why do you, why do you think he he started to perhaps fall out of love with cricket?
2: Well, I think there were two reasons, and the first one was obviously personal because he'd fallen in love with someone who then died, mm. and um his life just literally went off kilter for a while. I mean, he, he. I mean, he was. She died in 1937, and says Barb um,
1: he, Edith uh, Hilda Hilda Reed. Am I right? Is that a yes, lady? Yeah. Yes.
2: And and when she died, it's noticeable how little cricket he watches the following season. Um, he goes back to Sydney that winter simply because he can't stand to be in England. Then he comes back with Bradman's team in 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 '38, uh, but he watches very little cricket apart from the tests, and um, he really was very downcast. And I think it took him, I think I'm being honest, it probably took him a good, well, I think it took the war years, really, for him to be able to get back onto course. And of course, when he came back to England after the Second World War, he didn't really want to write about cricket. Everybody wanted him to write about cricket, but... He kind of wanted to write about music and then he found that he couldn't make a, make a kind of living out of music. And when I say a living, I mean a really good living because one of the things mm. which, which kind of really caught my eye were, was really the amount of money that Cardass earned. I mean, he made a tremendous amount of money and, um, he was probably one of the less financially able men. That I've written about, because I mean, he couldn't keep money for five minutes.
1: When he um, died, I think, or, or it didn't you said something along the lines of he had about a year's worth of money <laughs> uh, left, despite everything that he'd made in his life.
2: Yeah, yes, He was sad. really worried about what was going to happen to him shortly before he died, because he'd never owned a house, despite the fact that he could have probably bought uh, about a thousand of them. <laughs> um, and he couldn't kind of drive, and he was obviously the least kind of practical of kind of men because he couldn't take care of himself which is why he um, decamped and lived really for much of his life in the National Liberal Club where where he could be waited on um, where somebody would bring his breakfast in the morning and the newspaper and his mail would be waiting and then he could wander down to the bar and see somebody that he knew or he could go into the restaurant and have a meal And yet, um, and yet and he, he was from the most
1: practical. working class of stock, wasn't he?
2: Yes, and I think to be honest with you, I mean, one of the things which, which is most kind of striking about Cardus is the way that he reinvented himself entirely. I mean, he shook off all trace of his working class roots until it became useful for him. And it only became useful after the Second World War when he wrote his autobiography. And then he was able to go back and, and, and kind of mine it all and, and, um, I don't think that people really understood until that point where he where he come from. Um, yeah, these, and, uh, and, and it brought him an entirely new audience.
1: Yeah, no, I, I I think that's true. I mean, his early years, as you as you you know portray, is is you know his mother was uh, a prostitute. I think his aunt was as well. His aunt probably was a more influential figure on his on his life in 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 some ways, wasn't she? Um, do you think? Do you think he had an additional determination because he was looking to get away from that background?
2: Oh yes, I think that was the motivation, and I think he set out to do that very early on. I mean, and I mean, I'm not just talking about sixteen or seventeen. I think he realised probably by the time he was eleven, something like that, that that the only way he would get out of where he was was through education, and. While he couldn't get a formal education, he could get an informal education. And his informal education was obviously the libraries. Yes. And he, uh, and he went to the, went to the, um, university lectures, uh, um, lectures, which were actually free to the public. Or he went to the public lectures. And, um, and kind of suddenly, within, probably between the ages of, Eleven and say twenty-one. He was he, I mean, he was kind of teaching himself to a level of a university education, um, and he was completely self-taught. Completely self-taught.
1: And do you think that to a certain extent was you know there's a wonderful chapter in the book which I think is called, oh, forgive me if I get it not completely. Was it called Love Me, Love Me? But but it it, it is almost built around his desire to be respected loved and acknowledged do you do you think he genuinely do you got that do you think he got that to the extent that i think you clearly feel he deserved
2: i don't think that he was ever comfortable really that he always felt a little a uh, little bit more vulnerable because he would pretend to be an extrovert where he's really in really the opposite of that um, I mean, he would try to pretend that he was super confident and he wasn't. Um, and it was always this kind of, um, not pretense in a way, but I think it was always a show. Um, and I think that certainly towards the end, he began to doubt whether or not, um, on certain cases that he'd taken the right paths. Because as you said, um, in the last year of his life, he really was quite concerned about how he was going to earn a living, um, whereas um, the Sunday Times wanted him to write. He, he, I mean, he was a, uh, he was increasingly at odds with the Guardian, who, it has to be said, didn't particularly treat him very well during the 50s and the 60s, um, until, of course, at the point at which he got his knighthood. And then they were sending around a car to pick up his copy. Um, and I think he was a bit resentful of the Guardian, whereas since, of course, they've they've you know recognized that he's one of the most pivotal uh, figures in the whole history of the newspaper.
1: Which do you think he would have coveted more, um, an honorary member uh, MCC membership, which he finally got, but very very late in life, or a knighthood?
2: Oh, I think the knight um because as he often said, and he used to boast to, um, John Arlott, it was very useful for getting him a table at the Savoy. <laughs> um, he just had to say, I'm Sir Neville. And of course, his wife, who, and they had this very strange marriage where they didn't really live, well, they didn't live in the same house for about two years of their 50 year marriage. Um, used to really like going to Fortnum's <clears throat> and saying to the assistant, it's for um, Lady Cardus. Um, and I think, obviously, in the 1960s, using a title like that, when so few people got knighted and so few sporting people got knighted, um, that it had great currency and enormous cachet.
1: Didn't you say the year he got knighted, was, um, wasn't was Ram- Sir Alf Ramsey, as he, wasn't he one of the other sporting characters the same year, or did I, did I dream that?
2: It was the New Year's Honours list of 67, and of course England had won the World ah, Cup yeah. in 66, so... Um, and Ramsey was was one of the names on that list but if you look through the whole list um, I mean there were very few people's names on there that you would actually recognise because it mostly went to civil servants and captains of industry
1: I like to think he might have appreciated it whilst I don't don't know anything about how he felt about football Um, but there's something about Sir Alf Ramsey in terms of reinventing himself you know, educating himself. Remember how how terribly well spoken Sir Alf was. Um, he, he, that's not how he started talking in life. Um, you know, so, so in a way, there's the, you know, the reinvention that Sir Alf Ramsey did. Whilst not probably to the extent of Neville Cardus's, there was a there was a there was a flicker of similarity between the two that you hmm. you could probably point out, I think.
2: Oh yes, I mean, if you interviewed Alf Ramsey as I did a couple of times, um, you know, he had that. I mean, a very um, a very tight way of speaking, really, and, and he kept his sentences very clipped, and that was obviously the way that he'd been taught. BBC during, English uh,
1: during the nineteen fifties. Mm, he did. Now, Annie, you had a question as well, there.
3: Yeah, I I have a quick question. I um I read your book, Duncan, with a huge smile on my face most of the time, and um and uh, certainly giggled a little bit. So um I I really think that. Uh, he had a, a rather good sense of humour. I love the there's a the little quote that you say where a stranger said, um, I've been looking for years for an uglier man than me and you win easily. I love that. <laughs> I mean, do you think it's a huge part of his writing that, that, that he's got that sort of sense of humour, that good sort of characterisation?
2: Oh, I think, Annie, that, I think that's one of the reasons why he survives.
3: Mm. Um,
2: because I think that The humour, whether it's explicit like that Mm. or whether it's implicit in some of the descriptions of one or two of the players that he saw is absolutely vital to his writing. I think he had a fantastic sense of humour and um, I think it's the hardest thing to actually write. Um, I mean, you know, it's very difficult to be funny. Mm. I've kind of always loved the story about S.J. Perlman who wrote for the Marx Brothers and um, he was phoned up one day and he was the great American humorist and he was and he was phoned up one day by a friend who said um, oh I just wanted to ask you and Perman said oh no look I, I, I'm in the middle of a sentence can I call it, call you back and he phoned him back two weeks late and said, I just finished that sentence. <laughs> and, and that's how difficult it is to be funny. Whereas Cardus, mm. it, it kind of just came sort of naturally to him. And when you look at his contemporaries, um, particularly through that period, I mean, I don't think anyone would call E, um, E. W. Swanton
1: humorous. No, um, no, no, no.
2: <laughs> Archie Robertson Glasgow, yes. Uh, but generally speaking, everyone else was kind of mm. rather sort of plain and sort of factual, really. And and that was another reason why he kind of stood out.
3: Yeah, he seemed to bring his characters very much, al- the, the characters very much alive, didn't he? I,
2: oh, uh, yeah. I think that was the vital thing for him. I don't think that you would have read one of his match reports um, purely to find out the score, because you could have got that from the
1: scoreboard. Mm. How but, do you think, <laughs> Duncan, he might have managed social media in the modern day and age can you see can you see him distilling the, the 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 breadth and 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 wisdom and humor down into you know enough characters for a tweet, or do you think he'd have just issued that and wanted nothing to do with it
2: um I can well perhaps I'm a bit kind of biased here, but speaking as someone who doesn't do social media <laughs> um because I think that way madness lies. I would, I would have to say that I think a, a kind of person of, person of Cardiff's ilk probably wouldn't go anywhere near social media. Um, obviously there'd be enormous pressure on him from his publisher to go on social media and from his newspaper, but I just don't think he would do it because, um, I, um, I think he would always prefer the kind of broader, broader canvas because it's so difficult then um if you're on a very narrow canvas to be able to get the kind of nuance and um so often people do it with the exclamation mark which i always think never in uh proves a, proves a good joke and doesn't rescue a bad joke yes Um <laughs> that, that i just don't think he would do it
1: oh that uh, i i kind of had the feel that, that 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 might be the case what do you, do you think if we really think about other communicators and writers today um who do you think there's any any who stand out to you in the modern world who have elements of neville Cardus in them or their approach
0: that oh, ability it, to bring
1: life and colour to characters and, and tell a bigger uh, to tell a higher truth.
2: I think if you were to kind of chart a family tree of cricket writers, then he would be at the top, obviously, because because mm. everybody has come from Cardiff because he invented modern modern cricket writing, um, and I think that everybody, whether or not they will admit it or not, whether or not they know it or not has something in him because they will have read it and you retain it rather than the way a plant retains water i think and and so at some time it will slip through and i will go and read an awful lot of cricket writers and obviously an awful lot of cricket books and things like that and i will you know i will maybe go through pages where i don't recognize um any other kind of writer there other than the writer himself and I then I'll suddenly come across a kind of passage or a paragraph and it will be um, a, a kind of a, um, a kind of moment where I'll say, yeah, Cardis could have written that or Robertson-Glasgow could have written that. But, of course, Robertson-Glasgow wouldn't have happened without Cardis. So, of course, everything came from Cardis.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're, you know, we have a number of, if I look at today's day and age, if I look at George Dobell, you know, Older, but a Matthew Engel, a Jonathan Lew. The, the, these, the, the, I see elements of Neville Cardis in in all of them. The, their you know their occasional ability to turn a phrase, their, 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 their the 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 colour they can bring to to what they write. By the way, the other cricket writers are available if any happen to be listening <laughs> to this. But um, but they and Lawrence Booth as well. The, the, these are some who I bring to life. Do you think ex-players who become journalists and then broadcasters? have the same... Can they, they imbue themselves with some, some Neville Cardus, or, or do they struggle more, do you think?
2: Well, it really depends on how much you read. I mean, I always say that you can't write unless you read. And that was something that... I mean, I would say, obviously, Cardis, because he, because he, because he read so much. But, you know, obviously, other people like John Arlott, uh, because he was a poet... Mm-hmm. Um, he used to produce poetry programs um, I mean you talked about matthew uh, you talked about Matthew Engle mm-hmm. there. I shared an office with Matthew more years ago now than I care to remember and um, he taught me an awful lot, and one of the things that he taught me was that if you only read books about sport, then you will only write books about sport and when I say that your 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 kind of book will only be about the sport, and the best books about sport really are about the human condition and they're about the interaction between players and teams and fans and all those kinds of things um and so whether or not i mean it doesn't really just um uh apply to players coming into the game. It applies to anybody really who wants to kind of write, and um, certainly about sport, is that um, your reading should be as broad as it possibly can be.
1: Yeah, I, 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 I would go along with that. Now, we have a number of things in common. Um, I think one <laughs> is an abiding love of sport. <laughs> one is an incredibly abiding love of cricket, and I want, I would, I would, we will want to talk to you a little bit more about the current state of cricket. Um, but the other one thing we, we definitely have in common is that both you and I did attend all four days of uh, Middlesex and Yorkshire at the end of the 2016 series. And as I say, it, it, what well, I'm very interested uh, to to know how you came to a light upon that game, whilst you were also sort of mired in uh, the the creation of of, of uh, the Great Romantic was that was that opportunistic you went here's a real opportunity to that that, that that brings the essence of all that's good about county cricket and i can see a big story happening or or was it was it a sort of a more considered thing to sort of bring somehow unite the way the two books came together
2: uh, no i mean i'd been working most of 2016 on the neville Cardis book which was which was practically finished apart from the last chapter and I wasn't sure, um, I mean, I always wanted to go to a Lancashire-Yorkshire game, um, or to kind of, I mean, I've got another idea about how to finish it.
0: Um,
2: and I was working on that at, at, at that particular time and the county championship was just boiling up then to its finish. And, um, I thought to myself, well, the last games, the last game, is it Lords? I think I'd been to Lords for the previous uh, for the last game the previous year, mm. and I thought to myself, well, if it comes down to the last game of the season, it certainly doesn't happen very often at Lords, so I probably should write a little, a little kind of book about it. And the first thought I had was, I don't know if anybody's familiar with the way that publishing works, but these days you've got to do um, a kind of synopsis. And then 46 people sit around a table and decide whether or not they will take the book on. And I thought to myself that if I go to a major publisher, it'll be November before they decide whether or not they actually want to do that book. And then it'll be too late for me to write it. So I rang up somebody I knew and said, look, if I wrote this book, would you be interested in publishing it? And he said, yes. And so I said, right, if it comes down to the last game of the season, I will come and write that book. And that must have been the first week of September, I think. It was. And, and so I know the previous week before I went to Lords, I went to watch Lancashire, Show Middlesex at Old Trafford, where actually Lank, uh, actually Middlesex should have won that game. We should. And, um, and then I went to Lords and I booked myself into a hotel not too far from the ground and just literally threw myself into it. I thought, well, um, you know, I'll just take as many notes as I can and, um, then I'll come back and I will write it. But the thing was, I had promised myself and I did say to the publisher, I said, look, and I said, I can't finish it. I said, I, um, um, I, I can't finish it much before the first week of December simply because I must go back to write Cardus because I thought I was going to be finishing Cardus and that Cardus would be out probably in 2018. Mm. Then when I was at Lords, I got a message to say, would I be interested in working with Johnny Bairstow on his book? And so, um, I said yes immediately,
0: mm-hmm.
2: literally within 10 seconds. And, um, and so that's why Cardis was published, um, last year rather than 2018, because I knew obviously that the Kings of Summer was coming out, yep. and I obviously Johnny's book would kind of come out later in the year, and I thought it might be a bit much to <laughs> have three books out in the same
1: year. Well, if Johnny Burstow had been at Lords um, in the same way that Ireland had allowed Tim Murter to be at Lords, who knows what his how history may have changed? But uh, <laughs> that wasn't the case. It, it, what fascinated me, and what so you you live in Yorkshire? um and originally you were from is it from Nottingham
2: and I'm, well I'm originally from the north east i'm originally oh. uh, from newcastle
1: right yeah 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 but then you 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 worked and lived for a long time in nottingham we yeah, we, I we, to nottingham,
2: we um, really um when i was a child yes mm.
1: so as you're covering the sort of the, the the great climax to that season and yorkshire are playing middlesex um are you seeing it through Yorkshire eyes or are you seeing it through completely impartial eyes?
2: I think you've got to see it through in the partial eyes. I was very um, I was very um, um, pleased when a couple of people who were Middlesex fans sought uh, me out somewhere and said that they thought it was just very, very balanced because uh, I thought Middlesex was the best side of that that, uh, um, summer and um, they deserved to win the championship. I yeah. mean, it would have been a nice story for me had <laughs> Yorkshire become the first side to win it three successive years, the first since Brian Close's side in the 50s.
1: Middlesex but have tried but never it, done it.
2: But I just thought it was just a fantastic story, really. And the game had so many turns and twists and corkscrew <laughs> and changes of fortune. And if you remember most of all, Tony. On that, um, I think it was the Thursday afternoon when it was raining and mm-hmm. or it was dark, and um, and Ryan Sidebottom was just kind of clinging on so they could get past the total that would that would that would mean they wouldn't have to follow on or something. Mm-hmm. And it was just a fantastic match, really.
1: Well, I, uh, thinking back to characters, um, I, I spent a bit of time that evening chatting to Tim Bresnan. I think maybe oh, yeah. 142. A yeah, what a, I mean, if you want to think about, if, you know, if you if you place yourself in the suit of of, the, of Neville Cardus, and you're <laughs> thinking about a character to bring to life who is larger than life, in in, in, in a, I can I can almost see how you do sort of adopt that way of thinking, and how both um, Ryan Sidebottom and um, and Tim Bresnan. Lend themselves to that because they blow both, both. They both played heroic roles in a sadly losing cause. And what I do recall is Tim Bresnan was such an utter gentleman, and such good fun in the bar afterwards. You know, he, he 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 must have been inside so deeply disappointed, and yet externally he was he was just such he was such a nice guy and so fun to be with. It was very impressive. But 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 I think we could add him potentially to our list of larger than life characters. Oh, yes.
2: and I think. Um... I think now I um, now I look back on that book. I just had a hunch that it that it kind of might work, and I'm so pleased I did it because it may not happen again.
1: No, well, um, I I just want to ask Annie a question um, <laughs> because Annie is a cutter and she bleeds Somerset. I can assure you. Um, where where were you, were you there at Lords, or were you following from afar in in impotent frustration?
3: I was agonizingly listening in the garden at home oh lord and it was yeah it was rather hellish to tell you the truth but yeah delighted for middlesex of course
1: because also there was such almost machiavellian intrigue mm. in the in the in the conspiracy to create the result duncan do you think that it was, was part of the drama
3: right. it was absolutely right anyone would have done it
2: Yes, I think anybody would have done it, and I think that had they not done it, they would have regretted it for the rest of their playing lives. Um, so I don't really chastise either Middlesex or Yorkshire for being no. able to say to him, uh, to, uh being able to say, "Well, we're going to try and get a finish here." And of course, there were so many people in the grand that day. Oh, I mean, it, it was fantastic, and it was so uh-huh. hot. It was such, i mean, you couldn't believe that it was late September. You would have thought it was probably July or August.
1: I did. I did. I think what you did. I mean, I'd, I'd started in the pavilion for most of the of the days, and then for some reason on the last day, uh, my friends and I just decided we're going to go and sit around in the uh, the upper Compton stand, <laughs> and it, it was to watch the whole ground just gradually. It was like the the, the old days when news would get out <laughs> by word of mouth. And suddenly, you know, what was it about twelve, thirteen thousand by the, the 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 time the end of the of the day had come, and to think that county cricket, and this was, I think, is is just one of the most wonderful things about it, that it 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 was a phenomenal advertisement for county cricket that was also live on television, and just people started appearing out of nowhere when they could see the direction that it was going in.
2: And I think one of my favourite memories is actually. Um, after the match was over, when I went to queue for one of the scorecards, and the queue for the scorecards was just enormous. (laughs) Everybody wanted to take back a souvenir.
1: Oh, yes, I I, I have mine at home. Um, So you you are currently working, I believe, or no, there is a book coming out in July for you. Um, Is it called um, One Long Beautiful Summer? It is, yes. Tell us a little. Tell us a little bit about what we can expect there. It is available, by the way, to pre-order on Amazon right now.
2: Um, well, basically, I decided um, I was thinking. Well, it's about a month ago. Uh, sorry, a month ago, a kind of year ago this month, because in January is the time where I start to look at the fixtures and I start to order my wisdom and do all the things that you get ready for the summer. And uh, because I find it a very dull month and it really does drive me <laughs> mad. Um, <laughs> And so, um, last year I picked off the shelf a book about, uh, I, I picked off the shelf Edmund Blunden's Cricket Country. Mm. And I hadn't read the book for ages. And I don't know if anybody knows anything at all about it, but it was, but it was written during the early 1940s during the Second World War, uh, when Blunden slightly feared that there would be no cricket for him to come back to after the war was over and he was missing it so much so he decided to write down his memories of all the cricket that he'd seen and I suddenly thought well I wonder whether or not as a little bridge, um, I should go back and say that in 2009 um, I I wrote A Last English Summer which was my kind of trek around the grounds of England and into Colwyn Bay in Wales. Mm.
3: It's a wonderful Um, book
2: recording what i thought was would would be one of the last full english summers before there was a great change for one day cricket i must confess that i didn't myself even anticipate that it would be uh, um that it would happen as quickly as it did um but um when i think about it i saw the last um mcc champion champion county game that was Staged at Lords, and it was utterly freezing, I can tell you. (laughs) Um, I saw a Pro 40 game. That's the one I saw at Colwyn Bay, which is a tournament that kind of doesn't exist. And if you go through the England team that I saw play at Edgebaston that year in the Ashes Test, well, there are very few of them left. And of course, lots of people have, you know, aren't aren't kind of in the uh, game now. And so I thought, well, it would might it would be a nice little bridge if I went back. Um, during the summer, and did um, just a kind of summing up of of kind of what's happened in the in the ten years since. And so, and so I did several several games. I was lucky; I got to go to the um, the, um, the what turned out to be the last day of the test at Headingley. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. I went to watch Leicestershire versus Northamptonshire. As you know, I went to Somerset, Essex. And I went to one or two of the games. I saw Jofra Archer play for Sussex seconds. And I thought the place would be packed out. And by noon, when Archer had already taken about four wickets, I think there were 73 and three sort of dogs on the ground. Um, and there's a bit more polemic in it, I suppose. I was just very concerned that um, about what the kind of 100 will do to the future of cricket. Um, someone asked me uh, just before Christmas, whether I thought the kind of new competition would be a success, and I said, yes, I think it will be a success, uh, but the question is how, where long will it be a success, whether or not, after the initial interest in it in in kind of five or ten years' time, will it kind of still be a success mm-hmm. and and the kind of damage that making it a success could actually cause to the long term future of long form cricket and i suppose that's that's what one one long and beautiful summer is about and um the title comes from um the last 10 minutes of the match at uh taunton i was sitting with a friend of mine and because obviously the result was then known everybody knew that Essex were going to win Mm -hmm. and they're just playing out time really and we started talking about, um, we both watched cricket from roof at the same kind of period. And we were talking about players we'd seen and, uh, matches we'd seen and just going down memory lane, really. And it did seem to me then, as I look back on it, that it, that everything had just knitted into one long, beautiful summer. And, um, I thought, well, if it's about to end, then it kind of, at least I've seen some of it.
1: Do you? I mean, I was going to ask you because one thing that shines out of both books—well, when I say I mean, you've written many, but uh, of *Kings of Summer* and of *Of uh, the Great Romantic*—is I think you have an abiding love of county cricket. Do, do you do you fear for its future, or do you think its inherent strength will keep it with us, even if even if we we we, we absorb some changes?
2: Well I do I kind of do worry and I do worry because of the number of county championship matches that are going to be played and the number of county championship matches which will be played at a point when people can actually see them. Mm. Um and I don't know I just don't think there's the will there from the ECB you know. <laughs> I mean as soon as as soon as the ECB keeps saying that county championship is is kind of absolutely paramount to them i'm rather like the character who then hears somebody talk about probity and then he goes and cancers cancels the spoons yeah. um, i just I'm, I'm just not sure whether the kind of will is there to make sure that in 10 years time there will be a full complement of county championship teams and how many games that they will play as i said i'm I, i'm kind of really concerned that there's a point when people have the long summer holidays that there isn't enough championship cricket played.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, it's a deep and abiding concern of, of ours. <laughs> but um, I think we feel that if you have strong five-day test cricket and that continues to drive engagement in interest, then something has to feed that and the county game Needs to continue to do that. I'm delighted that we've just seen a fabulous Ashes series, that we've won a World Cup, and that um, even now in South Africa, uh, England aren't getting their characteristic away mauling. It's 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 gripping, enthralling stuff. Uh, that's gone five days, so 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 we're all very excited about that, and I suspect Neville Cardus would have been too. Um, I could see him thoroughly enjoying that now i have a very one very final and an important question for you um if you were able to uh, to be sat now somehow opposite neville Cardas and he has read your book what would you like him to say to you
2: <laughs> well i would like him to say that he kind of liked it because um you always look for the well you look for the kind of uh, uh, approval that he sought i mean it was I mean, it was uh, kind of one of those things. It was by sheer fluke that um, this year's William Hill event was held at the National Liberal Club.
1: Ah, yes, indeed. And,
2: um, it went, and that was purely because the room that they normally use is being refurbished, and so they'd look for something else. And in the summer, they'd alighted on the National Liberal Club. And so it wasn't because <laughs> it wasn't because um, of the Neville Cardus book. But it was just absolutely fluky, and um, I kept thinking uh, because I kind of stayed in the hotel the night before, and then walked down into the kind of room on the um, on the morning of the award uh, into this lovely room, which of course Cardis must have walked through. Mm. And I'm, you know, somebody said to me as I was making my speech, you know, he's probably in the corner having a fag. and you know watching all this i'm sure he probably was
1: well there's one there's Uh, a couple of lovely lines in or in both the books we've talked mainly about here in this this discussion um, where you actually seek him out and it almost feels like it it, it, somehow it's almost biblical or walking in issues (laughs) in um, in uh, the great romantic you talk about going to see the old fellow himself with the and the portrait rather disappointing portrait <laughs> in, in the uh, old Trafford Pavilion, and in Kings of Summer you you deliberately retrace his steps from his to, to exactly the route he would have taken to lords. Um, I somehow think he might have appreciated that
2: um, I, would, oh. I, I think he would have liked the fact that um, that kind of people are actually talking about him because, <laughs> because what I've noticed is that um, where he would get lots of kind of references in match reports, and if you kind of put him onto Google search, you will find him quite often, um, that that it was kind of in a sort of passing sort of way. And so I hope that now that people are talking about him a little bit more, that, that he will also be read a little bit more.
1: Yes, it certainly prompted me <laughs>
2: thoroughly read.
1: You know, I to, uh, to go back and... Uh... Read uh, I think his his autobiography is actually called autobiography, isn't it? It is, yes. I mean it's
2: the most unimaginable. <laughs> Rather title. prosaic title, but nonetheless it's, but it's uh, a lovely book.
1: Uh well look, um Duncan, thank you so much. Um it's been a joy to read the books, it's been a joy to chat to you. Um this podcast, of course, will be available to our subscribers on Patreon. Um and then it will be available to, or uh, through all the normal podcast channels. Duncan, thank you so much again for your time, wisdom, and just in, enjoyment of uh, the books we've talked about: uh, *The Great Romantic*, uh, *The Cricket in the Golden Age* of Neville Cardus, *Kings of Summer*, and *Up and Coming*: uh, *The Long Beautiful Summer*, which uh, is released in July. You'll find those in all good bookstores, whether it's online or uh, or, or bricks and mortar. Um, I hope they do fantastically well for you, Duncan. It's been an absolute delight, and thank you once again, and thank you, Annie. Thank you both.
2: Thank you so much, Tony, and thank you so much, Annie. Cheers.
1: Take cool. care now.
4: From Gloucestershire to Leicestershire Up into the stratosphere
0: Podcast Network.